you do not let technology lead you. It's the tail wagging the dog. But instead, you are leading into technology through this very human-centric orientation. You're in a much better place to make fewer unintended consequences happen as a result of the decision-making. Welcome to Evolve Leadership, the arena where high-achieving leaders are challenged to redefine their limits. My name is Angus Nelson. I grew up in the United States and I now live in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm an executive coach and I've spent my career advising and training leaders from startups to Fortune 500 companies. And here's what I've learned. An old, ineffective leadership framework will always keep you on a hamster wheel, consumed with work-life balance, burnout, and stress. Here on the show, each week we'll help you rethink the path to achievement. We'll help you discover new principles, new philosophies to the modern leader. Look, the world is relentlessly changing, demanding a new era of leaders. It's time to redefine your limits. So enter the arena, my friend. It's time to evolve. Welcome to the Evolved Leadership Show. And today we're going to be talking about innovative leadership in the age of AI. And Angus interviews Kate O'Neill. She's a tech humanist, uh, giving strategic advice to global leaders around on how to take the complexity of technology, AI, the robots that are coming, and how to really create it and make it better for humans and business. And she's an author, keynote speaker, CEO. Uh, she's been featured on BBC and NPR. You're really going to enjoy this talk with Kate O'Neill. Well, hey there, Kate. How are you today? Hey, Angus. I'm good. I, I'm at a sunny, bright day here in my home office in New York, and uh, it feels good. How about you? Well, I am visiting Nashville, uh, where I know you've got some roots. Uh, we're here wrapping up, selling our house, and we're all in on Lisbon, Portugal now with our family. And so we're wrapping up loose ends here and selling off all of our stuff and making the big transition. That's huge. It's huge. It Good is. luck with that. Well, thank you. And uh, I want to jump into today, we're going to talk about a number of different things around uh, you and your perspective in marketing as well as uh, the human quotient of our world. Again, we were talking about before, shout out to Brian Kramer, Mr. H2H, human to human. Uh, we were talking about you before, if your ears are a ringing. It's because we were talking about you. Uh, Kate, let's back up in the story. How did you get to where you are today? Oh, well, I mean, obviously for all of us, there are many winding roads and uh, a lot of decisions that, that lead up to every point. But I think the key things for me are that I was always interested in technology as a kid, you know, throughout my uh, schooling and, and um, you know, just as a hobby on the side, kind of playing around with programming and uh, I won. Uh, I think the thing that sums it up best actually is that in first grade, I won a programming competition, statewide programming competition, and a statewide young authors competition. And it feels like that sort of sets the tone for the whole rest of my life. Is like those are always going to be sort of joint interest for me. The the written word and sort of communication of ideas, as well as how we can stay on the cutting edge of what technology offers to us. And if I remember correctly, that was in Illinois. Yeah, yeah, Is good call. Right? Yeah, Illinois. Yeah. I grew up uh, just outside of Chicago, but I've also lived in the Bay Area and Portland, Oregon, 
Nashville, Tennessee, as you mentioned, and now New York, and a, a brief stint in Dusseldorf. So it's uh, it's sort of been this interesting, circuitous route through the United States plus Germany. I was uh, just going to say, <laughs> I didn't know you had a little EU in your background. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a linguist by education, and so mm-hmm. my in my I had uh, German as a major in undergrad, mm-hmm. and I did an internship in the summer between my summer and sorry, sophomore and junior year. Mm-hmm. That uh, was in Dusseldorf, and uh, that was super fun. I got to practice my German, although, mm-hmm. you know, it, Germans are notorious for not wanting to speak German with you. They just want to practice their English. I got that same experience in Portugal. Mm-hmm. I worked really hard on my Portuguese, and then yep. none of the people in Lisbon would they, speak Portuguese with me. <laughs> they don't have the patience. I'm I'm right there with you. I'm still in my A2 class, you know, trying to... Estudios uh, portugueses en escuela por dos días por semana es muito difícil. And you, you, you try and practice, and same thing. They don't have the patience, like, well, we'll just talk English. And you're like, come yeah. on! I would be um, sitting there, like, rehearsing what I was going to order from the waitress who came over to the table, and I would be in Lisbon, and I would be ready to go. And she'd be like, oh, that's cute. Like, what did you want to order? Turn <laughs> <laughs> it! And you get outside of the, like, touristy areas. They're a little bit more gracious uh, in letting you try. And in fact, sometimes they'll applaud you. I try and take this as a compliment, but my immediate response is you're mocking me, but (laughs) I'm giving a benefit of the doubt. Um, And my wife is doing B1, B2 in Portuguese. And so she's like superior to me and she's now conversing pretty, you know, efficiently. That's great. Um, And our kids are in uh, Portuguese school too. Um, and I think that's kind of a, a cool metaphor because as our family has gone into a new environment with new language, new tools, I think that's an incredible segue into some of the things you and I were talking about before. What I've been seeing you posting content on is we're looking at new tools, AI, a new world, the speed, the rapid transformation of how things are moving forward, other technologies that are now being ramped up because of learning language models, because of artificial intelligence, because of all these components, our world is dramatically different. And some would say it's the robots are coming to take over. What say you? Well, I don't think the robots are coming to take over. I think the business models might be trying to take over (laughs) uh, using the robots. But I think it's always a misplaced aggression when we blame the robots for something that uh, the business leaders have put into place. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I think I am um, I'm watching very closely this movement of techno optimism that that exists out there. You know, uh, Mark Andreessen is is one of the the big proponents of it. Um, I call myself a strategic optimist and a tech humanist. So these two ideas um, exist in that nice tension space for me. Uh, but they are not the same as as this whole professed ideology of techno optimism. And the important thing to distinguish there is that I I think that technology can serve humanity incredibly well. I think if we deploy it right, it, it could serve us really well. At the same time, I'm greatly aware of its risks and harms, uh, and not just because of technology, but as I alluded to, because of business models that that are amplified and accelerated by these exponential technologies with very little check on their growth and on their scale and on the harms that they can do um, to to the people who are 
interacting with these technologies or just kind of in the way of the technologies who, who are part of the constituencies that are um, out there in the community um, being affected. You know, facial recognition and surveillance is, is a category within that that we could talk about specifically. But I think the interesting thing from a, from a leadership perspective, from the, the human quotient of leadership perspective is no business leader really wants to make bad decisions. No business leader is out there striving to make decisions that are going to harm people or going to, you know, create a worse output for humanity. That is just universally not true in the audiences that I speak with, the consultants I advise, um, the people that I, I get to have Q&A with at, at events and, and sessions. So I think what's really important is that people need better decision-making tools and a better decision-making framework, a better framework for thinking about the future and about these tech-enabled decisions in the context of the kinds of impacts and, and sort of acceleration that can happen as a result of these emerging technologies that, that can take one decision and rapidly scale it to absurd levels. It can also take it and, and amplify it to incredibly helpful levels, but that the difference between absurd and helpful or absurd, as I say in my work, meaningful is really the focus, um, can be the difference between one sort of short-sighted decision versus another. Yeah, and um, you're related to that, and this is something that I think you know is a challenge for a lot of leaders is <clears throat> decision made today, oftentimes we're still staring at our navel because we have an immediate need, mandate, or commission that we're trying to achieve, but we don't necessarily lift our head up to see horizon to say, what is this decision today going to look, impact, resonate, ripple, whatever, into tomorrow? And we were talking about uh, before we came on to this call, talking about you know what are the impacts of some sporting events that have these different quotients and different needs. They see it from some piece of entertainment value, not understanding or re you know referencing the other things that are impacted outside of that. What is some way that you would recommend for a leader to think two, three, four steps down the line to take them from the impact of a decision today to where it could be tomorrow? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are that are useful tools here. One is that we are taught to think about the future in this very binary way of dystopia versus utopia. Mm -hmm. And that is a really unhelpful framework, um, first of all, because nobody believes utopia is even possible. Uh, so now that means that all we're really talking about is shades of dystopia every single time we talk about the future. Yeah. And so, you know, not helpful, not not um, actually making any useful progress for us in terms of how we see it. So yeah. um, I actually I actively recommend doing away with that framework as much as yeah. possible and instead thinking about a framework that is more that has more agency and more involvement in how to create the outcomes from today that we'd like to see. So the future, as I always say, the future is just the time in front of us. And it is at least partly knowable and partly predictable because it is at least partly shaped and determined by the actions and decisions we've already taken and those we are about to take today more critically. So the fact that, you know, there is this through line, there is this continuity from yesterday's decisions through today's decisions to tomorrow's outcomes. And that's yeah. always true. I think when people really start to digest that, they start to feel more like, OK, the future is not so uncertain after all. It's not so out of our hands. It's not so bleak. It's more a factor that some things are already in play that we're not going to be able to undo. 
But many, many things are still within our control, and the decisions we make today will absolutely shape tomorrow's outcomes. I think that training is is very, very helpful for people to to internalize. And I actually... Go ahead. I was going to tell you a quick story, but go ahead. We'll we'll come right back to the story because I know one of the things you talked about in a post, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a couple months ago when you talked about, you know, that when we look at so much of this stuff, the intellectual rigor and relentless strategy we have to have to ensure that we don't, you know, let ourselves off the hook of that end game or of that results or whatever, and holding ourselves up to a higher standard. And one of the things I observed is, you know, self-awareness is a difficult thing in individuals but even more so in organizations Mm, mm -hmm. for them to understand like perception and brand they can see from, you know, our, my former world, your current world of marketing, like, Oh, they think about that portrayal, but they don't necessarily think about what's the opportunity for them to take this positive, conscious, intentional future focus of how that company is going to look or play out in in the future. And I'll give you a quick example. And then I want to turn it back to you for your story. I was uh, speaking for, um, a large insurance company, a $16 billion brand, and they've been around for, I don't want to, I don't want to, if I say the number, uh, it'll narrow down to the company and I, I don't want to expose anybody, but a lot yes. of years. We all over, play this game all the time. Right. A <laughs> lot of years. How to not violate our NDAs. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, over, over, <laughs> over a couple of lifetimes ago, this company was created and has been one of the few companies that, for the most part, has stayed fairly consistent with its original mission other than you know, some iterations. And the conversation was, but what does tomorrow look like? Because just because you've been doing the same thing for so long does not mean that you have to continue to do that or that you will even be a- allowed to. Like the market can change, the, the sentiment can change, like everything can shift. And so the whole conversation was around that concept of picking your head up from your navel and look and see what's going on. And to them, that was such a challenging mandate. Like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, Nintendo was a card playing company over 100 years ago. And now they do video games. You know, and I went through this whole list of all these different companies and I'm like, what's to say that what you're doing is the only thing you'll be able to do? And the, the whole construct was looking into the future. How can you serve people on a more, and you'll love this, human level for human needs and human fears? What happens when AI now can do deep fakes? I just created my own image last week. It's talking with my voice saying things that I'm not saying, I'm just putting in words and it's giving different head, you know, shakes and mannerisms. Like I'm doing that and it's free. What happens when people are doing that and taking it to levels where all sorts of crazy can happen? And how are we preparing for that in this world of insurance and in this world of humanity, blah, blah, blah. So I'll turn it over to you for your story. I don't know if that disrupts your story or compliments. No, I think that the underlying premise is still the same. It is this idea of looking ahead to the future and trying to prepare for what what is coming. I, the story I was uh, going to tell you it is, um, you know, very in line with that. It's from, as, as you know, I was one of the first 100 employees at Netflix, and I got to witness some very key early decisions being made 
uh, at a time when this is in the year 2000, uh, you know, we had we had all just survived Y2K. <laughs> Uh, and Netflix was still pretty much a startup and, and not very well known outside of the Bay area. And they were up against the, of course, 800 pound gorilla in blockbuster. And it was by no means certain that, that, uh, Netflix would emerge at all from this battle, let alone emerge victorious. And you would think that at a time like that, that the CEO and the leadership would be investing every dollar, every resource, every ounce of energy they have into, you know, fighting that battle with that Goliath. And it turns out that wasn't what happened. In fact, Reed Hastings and the then leadership team were actually investing money into what we were then calling set-top boxes, which is the predecessor to streaming as we know it. So again, this is 2000 and Roku didn't come out as a standalone player until 2006. Uh, Netflix didn't have a dedicated streaming plan until 2007. And this is all while they're still a relatively unknown uh, entity fighting a big uh, household name brand. And so I just I think about that all the time. You know, what does it take to be making decisions that won't manifest for the better part of a decade ahead while you're locked in the existential battle of your fledgling company's life? I mean, I think I, I, oftentimes when I'm talking to a, a company's leadership, I might say, like, I don't know everything there is to know about insurance, you know, or in your example. Um, but what I do know is this, that, you know, vision and foresight are relevant in every single industry. And to be able to make those kinds of decisions and, and sort of see that clearly, what what matters now today and what's going to matter in the future and making sure that we're triangulating those decisions you know, setting them on a course that they actually will align with the horizon of the future we're trying to live into, that mm -hmm. kind of decision making is going to be key for everyone going forward uh, the, the, with the rapidity of change that we're dealing with. So when you're consulting, you're sitting down across the table from a leadership team and you're positioning their thought or their frame, what are some of the things that you give them or tools for, you know, how to see through the filter or lens that's best, you know, for what we're describing. So there's a couple of tools, uh, uh, quite a few tools, in fact, but one of them that I think is the most formative and fundamental is coming to this kind of um, concise articulation of strategic purpose. You know, we talk a lot about purpose in leadership it comes up in, in, a, in more esoteric and sort of touchy-feely ways. But the way that I tend to use it is more as, I, I like to say that when you really think about what it is that makes humans human, you could talk about a lot of different characteristics. But one of the characteristics that I think is most core and least reproduced in non-human animals and le least reproduced in machines is meaning, a sense of meaning, a kind of craving for meaning, a, a, an orientation toward meaning making. And the shape that meaning takes in business is purpose. It's the articulation of what it is we're trying to do. You know, meaning at every level is about what matters. Uh, and so purpose is always just an articulation of what matters about the work that you're doing, the business that you've created, like, you know, why do you exist as a company and what is it you're trying to do more critically at scale? 
You know, when we're really thinking about these kind of technology amplified decisions, what are you trying to do at scale? And even more relevantly, when you think about what it is you're trying to do and what it is that the people outside of your organization are trying to do and really trying to find the alignment between what makes that successful? How, how are you both successful in that interaction, in that transaction? And then using data and technology to amplify not the business objective, but the alignment between the business objective and the human outcome. Uh, so those are some tools and we have, you know, a canvas and a model and, you know, some other, other frameworks that really help get very concrete and specific about once you have articulated that. And I mean like a three to five word articulation of that strategic purpose statement that you can then sort of ladder through all of your goals and priorities and resources, all resource allocation, your brand culture and experience articulation. And only then, you know, then and only then do you start thinking about how do you model that in data? How are you making sure that you're bringing meaningful insights back to you through data and metrics? And then only then will you talk about technology and how technology actually helps you systematize and accelerate and operationalize those kinds of decisions. So when you, when you take that sort of that approach to it, where you, you do not let technology lead you, it's the tail wagging the dog, but instead you are leading into technology through this very human centric orientation, you're in a much better place to make fewer unintended consequences happen as a result of the decision-making. Let me just pause for a second to say this. There is one trait that you will find in every successful leader, no matter their industry, no matter their role. And that trait is action. And we want to inspire ambitious leaders like you to bet on yourself and take action on those audacious goals that you see in your heart. That's why we created our 90 day accelerator. It's a results driven battle tested framework designed specifically for high performing leaders like you to get unstuck and propel you towards your goals. And in just 90 days, you won't even recognize a person you used to be. To be a part of this elite community, go to evolveleadership.org. Now, back to the show. All right, so I agree with everything you're saying, and I'm putting myself in the shoes of you know a lot of the conversations I've had and I want to press you a little bit deeper into uh, activating this the human side of this conversation even more. So we go through all that rigor of what you said, you know, in an alignment, and I'm thinking about the person whose organization they are actively having to advocate for their team, their resources, their headcount, you know, whatever that that might look like. Uh, and especially if you're in a large company. It's, it can seem almost daunting how complicated and challenging it can be. And they could listen to your words and kind of throw their hands up in the air. And it's like, easy for you to say, yo, you know, and <laughs> they're at a place where maybe they're banging their head up against the wall. If you were to get into their ear, speak into their heart and talk about the human level, like what is some of the things they need to be conscious of or intentional about in their own mindset, efforts, culture building with their team and their organization within the company? 
Well, I guess I'm not sure if what you're asking is, you know, the 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 day to day experiences that may undermine that decision making and how to be, you know, humanly connected to mm-hmm. that. Uh, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. There? Like, let's let's speak to that granular level of them fighting and crunching through making this stuff happen, making it real, manifesting within their company. Yeah, you know, it, it's um, it's more and more the case with um, with the work that I do that if I do, let's say, a keynote, an opening keynote at a conference, um, that there might be a um, a an executive dinner that evening. You know, there might be sort of a small pool of of CEO level or or C level uh, executives who are invited to a, a smaller dinner, and I get a chance to to hear directly from the CEOs or CTOs or whoever it might be about this kind of thing, like very rubber hits the road kinds of problems that they're having. And they might, you know, they've already heard my keynote, so they know the frameworks and they know what I'm talking about. And now they're bringing me these questions. And it is in many cases, it'll be things like, um, you know, we were rolling out a new system and there was a person who just would not use this new system. They kept resorting back to their old system that they had. You know, uh, literally the other day I heard about a Rolodex, a literal paper Rolodex that was still in an organization up until I think it was five years ago that the person was saying. Um, so, so you know, people are people, and and I, and we we have within us some resistance to change, you know, more or less of us, uh, you know, all of us have it. Some of us have more resistance, let some of us less. Um, that person obviously had a great deal of resistance to the new system and just would not give up their Rolodex. And, you know, no matter how sort of whatever it was, a CRM or something that they were putting in place was going to benefit them and benefit the rest of the organization. And in that case, you do come down to these very, real management questions, not, not even so much leadership questions, but then management questions of how are you going to uh, motivate someone? How are you going to hold them accountable? How are you going to, you know, uh, think about their well-being as well as the well-being of their team and of the whole organization? And, and those are, you know, very practical decisions that, that come back to skills that, um, that there are timeless sort of tomes out there about that get into how to manage people well and how to make sure that we're asking the most and asking the best of people. Um, I think those require human skills as well, um, but they are all just really cascaded decisions of how we set the vision. If we're not holding to the vision that we originally set, it doesn't matter how well we manage on down and we're going to we're going to keep undermining our own decision making and our own vision if we're not saying no it, it truly is important that if we're going to implement this new system because it it serves us it serves our customers we've made this decision very consciously we looked at what the alignment was between what we're trying to do and what customers are trying to do and so we know that this system gets us there you know really a really crisp example i think of this is I think about like Disney theme parks as having a really well articulated purpose statement. It's create magical experiences. And it's just that simple. And yet that that is abstract. But when you think about someone who's a janitor at a at a theme park or working in a gift shop or working in a customer call center, they all are able to draw on that three word articulation 
for their own sense of what is the right thing to do right now? What matters about this interaction? How can I make this a more magical experience for the person who's having an issue at the moment that, you know, how can I contribute to that? And more importantly, what it does is it allows high technology investment decisions to be couched through that, that same framework. And you can say that a $2 billion investment in my magic band wearables system that brings payment information and customization information and all of that throughout the theme park is a very easy investment to rationalize when you suddenly realize how much more magical the experiences are going to be. And of course, how much that means increased loyalty and increased, you know, revenue uh, kind of metrics and, and all throughout the, the experience. So I think, you know, that, the frameworks themselves are relatively easy to justify. And once you start thinking about how to manage to them in the everyday, it really comes down to how much do you actually believe in the vision that you've cast and how, how are you going to use the, the real tools of management and leadership to make sure that your team has buy-in and that they're following through at, at every level that they can contribute and be accountable and, and have their sense of, of human contribution as well. Uh, and be part of of sharing that vision. Yeah, I like what you said earlier. <clears throat> you know that reading the reading the temperature in the room, basically, where it's like looking at the human quotient of where your team is at and what they need. It's kind of like we go from structure, systems, processes to person. And yeah. when we can shift our energy, shift our focus of like we're in this big company, our organization, we may not be getting the things that we want or need, but we're going to do what we have to do because we're geniuses, because we figure things out, because we were built for this and prepared for this. And it's like, that's the opportunity where the leader actually has to lead. You know, you shift from management of we're going to do this thing to now you're that uh, vision caster. You're the coach, you're the advisor, you're the mentor. You're, as that leader steps into this role, is like we have to lead the charge by A, meaning, meaning, meeting and, and being meaningful to the people around us, if I'm using your words. And then second of all is having this radical transparency. I believe in this day and age is the best case for any leader to come in and say, you know what? I'm pissed off too. I wish we had more resources. And what are we going to do about it? And the question I give my clients all the time is this powerful question that says, what does this make possible? No matter what the circumstance, what does this make possible? Because in every challenge comes opportunity. What can we shift? Where can we change? Where can we move, you know, allocate something from here to there that's going to move the ball faster, further, you know, creativity comes in and amidst those kinds of pressures if we let it and as long as we're just trying to be a you know a good indian a good soldier a good whatever you want to call it uh then we can get super frustrated because we're trying to follow some protocol expectation or mandate versus that meaningness or that meaningfulness is like let's let's step away from what the mandate is is say how do we create the culture and the people to produce that kind of result because it's not just going to come from dotting i's and crossing t's it's got to come from heart 
And I think that's the thing that in this human quotient, especially in those big organizations, the leader's opportunity to differentiate themselves, the opportunity for them to gather the momentum they, that is necessary has to come from heart. Yeah, you know, it's the the opportunity these days, I think, is really one of building trust. And the trust building exercise comes through that transparency you're talking about. But it com- it has to start from a clear, clearly articulated sense of strategic organizational purpose. Like there has to be a sense of what it is we're trying to do. I think, you know, this whole phenomenon of like of quiet quitting that was such a big topic over the last few years the reason why we are dealing with that that level of checked outedness you know uh, of people of burnt outness is because it's hard to feel the sense of purpose uh when when things are chaotic and and leaders have not been maybe at their best either in terms of articulating purpose to teams we we all are in greater need i think of a a clearer stronger articulation of what it is we're trying to do even in the midst of of turmoil and even in the midst of uh, changing priorities and shifting technologies and, you know, and climate emergency and geopolitical upheaval and all the rest of it. And people are acutely aware of all those macro changes that are happening and what's going on in the world at all times. And this is where we need leaders to really be even more clear about what it is we're trying to do and what we're trying to do at scale and how we're trying to use when we're trying to use new technologies to roll out these experiences or these decisions decisions at scale, we need to have people be bought in. We, we need to have people not be worried about this thing is going to replace my job. The, that really comes down to a lack of, of communication and a lack of transparency too, because I think a lot of times leaders are just trying to figure out for, for themselves or for ourselves am I replacing jobs or am I not replacing jobs? And, and I think that that cannot be the leading question. The leading question is how can I, you know, your question was good. You know, how, what does this enable to, that we previously weren't able to do? How can we make uh, a more aligned, a more amplified alignment between what we're trying to do and what people are trying to do? And if humans are going to be part of, of solving that equation, and of course they are, then we need to be better at articulating how and how people can be part of an, an excited embrace of, of new technologies in service of that purpose that we're all supposedly bought into. And, and as long as we all can feel that there is that true sense of purpose and that we are moving in the direction of what that purpose implies, then it isn't hard to get people to be swimming along with you and, and really making that, that happen. Well, I was just talking with someone just this last week, and they were talking about how um, not quiet quitting, just quitting, just flat yeah. out, I'm done. I'm going to go find something else. <clears throat> and um, and the conversation was, why? Well, because of this, because of this, because of this. And all the things that this person was sharing was pointed towards external pieces of the organization. I'm not getting the support from... Uh, the company, uh, the manager that I have, I'm not getting support from uh, the company in terms of resources I need to to get and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I said, well, what part is your ownership? What part are you going to own in this conversation? Like, well, I'm doing the best I can. I'm like, cool. 
can you settle to that? Because it sounds to me that you're feeling the pressure of these external pieces and you're adding pressure to your own performance because you think you have to do something they may or may not have even asked you to do, but you made up a story in your head. And we got in this conversation, I use as an example as we kind of unpack this, the level of ease this person had by the end of the conversation was because they were looking at the, like we were saying before, the dotted I's and the cross T's, instead of what's the part I actually have been asked to do and how do I like lower the stakes that I'm feeling right now inside of this organization that I placed upon myself. Because then I have power, then I can take action, and then I can be creative instead of the emotional pain or the emotional um, pressures that people place upon themselves when you're trying to do something in amongst you know chaos, uncertainty, and ambiguity. Clarity is kindness. And when a leader can help take the stakes off of someone else that they're feeling by giving clarity, hey, this is my expectation. Here's what success looks like. How you make that happen is up to you. But this is what I'm really looking for, is some of the best communication you can give to your teams. It's some of the best leadership you can give. Because in that moment is that human empathy and that compassion to say, if I just give you this thing, you're, you might build all these stories in your head of what you think I'm supposed to do. And especially in these large organizations, we're performance-minded. We do everything for accolades and validation externally. But in that moment, if a leader can speak into the heart of the matter and say, I believe in you and I support you, I got you, do you need any help? Like these are more powerful conversations. And then it takes that big vision. It takes all that stuff that we're trying to do, the mandates and everything, and brings that human into home, into heart, and into humanity. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, that's a, a lovely articulation. Clarity is kindness is a really nice uh, turn of phrase. I, we really emphasize within my work, clarity as an output of really rock solid, insightful, strategic decision making. Um, and, and I think clarity is something that people down the, the organization are looking for, but it's also, of course, the epitome of what people who are in named leadership positions are looking for in, in just overall is clarity, a greater sense of clarity. I think so many people are feeling a great sense of unease and uncertainty about the future. And, you know, we've already talked about the dystopia versus utopia idea, but there is also the sense that the decision-making frameworks that we've grown up with, you know, professionally, just don't really serve us in the moment. And, and so much of that is because we've really learned wrong how to make decisions and how to learn. Um, I, one of the things that I've observed is that we tend to think of learning as asking questions and getting answers. And that is actually not the full story. When we ask questions, and, and I, I love asking this in a room full of people and saying, you know, how many times have you ever asked a question and gotten an entirely different answer from every single person on your team? And everybody like has this nod of recognition, like, oh, yes, <laughs> like we've all had that experience. 
And it's because those, those answers aren't wrong per se, they're just only partial answers. And it's the job of a leader to stitch those together in some form or fashion and look for whatever the underlying truth is, uh, where the tension is between those partial answers and or the commonality between the partial answers. Uh, the easiest thing is if it's common, there is commonality between those partial answers, then there's probably some truth or insight in that commonality. But more often than not, there is something that the tension is indicating to us, and that's where we usually can find the greatest insight. And that insight, I find, is timeless. So we can ask a, a meaningful question, more and more meaningful questions again and again, get relevant partial answers for today. But what that leads us to is a timeless insight that then, based on how we pay attention to trends and externalities, you were talking about you know, us not paying attention to the things that are going on around and how things are changing and how you know, Nintendo needed to go from being a playing card company to a video game company. The paying attention to trends and externalities really helps us take that timeless insight and immediately be able to make timely decisions about the approach we need to take today. But what's even more critical, I find, is that what it gives you as almost like a form of exhaust from that process is a, what I call a bankable foresight. It allows you to say, look, this isn't something we need to deal with today, but it's clear that in the future, we're going to need to prioritize this thing. And that means that whatever we decide is our timely approach, that it needs to be in alignment with and accordance with what we see as this bankable foresight. As long as we can get ourselves from today's point X to tomorrow's point Z, then we're fine. And we, as long as we're making it clear to people what our vision is and what our purpose is, and everybody can kind of feel how we're getting there, then the, the easier we're making it for people to come along with us. I, another Netflix story that I love to tell is about how we had one central metric that we were always driving to, and that was new customer growth at that time. And each of us understood how our departments were doing a separate metric that contributed up to that one metric. And so you could have these very animated and very accountable discussions about how we were each contributing in very tangible ways, any given day, any given month to that larger number. And it wasn't esoteric. It wasn't, you know, abstract. It was very meaningful, purposeful, and very motivating to try to have those kinds of conversations with anyone else in the entire organization. So there are a number of tools that any leader can apply to not only get crisper and clearer about how they're thinking about the future, but about how they're bringing a true sense of purpose and, and sense of meaning into the work that not only they're doing, but that everyone in their organization is feeling like they can contribute to and bring some of these dimensions of metrics orientation and clarity and trust building and greater communication and transparency. All of the things we've talked about today, I think all of them are part and parcel of a toolkit that really helps leaders be more human and more effective in rapidly changing times. Uh, thank you so much. I I'm stealing that word crispy. I like that word crispy. <laughs> it's like when my wife was a photographer and she would say, it's got this crisp, clean look. And you remind me, I was like, ooh, that's a great, crispy means this, this clarity to the thing. Uh, Kate, 
bringing this in for a landing, two questions for you. One, what do you have coming up that people need to be conscious of? And two, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Uh, what I've got coming up is uh, truly more of what I've been working on. Uh, there are projects in the works, of course, but uh, nothing ready to announce. But people can find me and those projects that are underway uh, at koinsights.com. Uh, and uh, all of the social media that goes along with that is all linked on there. So uh, I, we're not really doing social media so much anymore anyway, mm. I think, <laughs> for the most part. So yeah, mm. koinsights.com. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Kate, for hanging out. And next time you're in Lisbon, I will probably be in Lisbon. And uh, we'll go out and have a pastel donata and a caparina and watch the sun go down. Sounds great. Thank you, Angus. You bet. Take care. Okay, don't. As we wrap up another episode of Evolve Leadership, thank you so much for taking time to invest in you. If there's to be any sustainable growth in your company or even in your relationships, you must grow first. And it's what I love to do for leaders, to help them grow, to challenge their thinking, sharpen self-awareness, to instill an unshakable confidence, and ultimately upgrade their sense of self. And we do this through our proprietary method called Agile EQ+, where we're leveraging agile leadership and emotional intelligence. We provide our signature training for individuals and for businesses, we've designed a unique curriculum for company-wide learning and development. If you'd like to learn more about our training or to schedule a call, you can simply go to evolveleadership.org. And until next time, stay driven, keep climbing, and never stop evolving. Oh, 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 oh,